I didn't really like school very much. And I was always like a little bit nervous about not doing well. Developing self-confidence is a good place to start if you want to succeed in science or in life. For both, you'll need good mentors. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard David Julius, the 2021 Physiology or Medicine Laureate. He was awarded the prize together with Ardem Patapoutian for his discovery of receptors for temperature, molecular sensors in our cells, which permit us to experience hot or cold. David Julius is a professor of physiology at the University of California, San Francisco. His wife, Holly Ingram, is also a professor of physiology at the very same university. My son, he says, you know, you guys, you talk science too much, so he's probably right. <laughs> host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. David Julius talks about his journey from anxious pupil to confident researcher, the importance of diversity in science, and how his research is connected to how different species experience the world in different ways. But first, David and Adam revisit their very first conversation early in the morning on October 4th, 2021, just after he'd been given the news of the prize by the Nobel Committee's General Secretary, Thomas Perlman. You're quite used to getting prizes, but none of the other prizes tell you the news at this ungodly hour. <laughs> no, no, this is unusual. You know, I think the uh, Nobel Foundation must like these stories about how people get contacted because, you know, otherwise you think they just put something on the nomination form that says, if this person floats to the top, do they have a cell phone number? But, <laughs> you know, in my case, they like called my sister-in-law who then texted me at two in the morning said, I don't know who this guy is, but I got his phone number. I didn't want to give him your, this is Thomas Perlman. <laughs> anyway, so, but it's always, it's these very interesting stories, you know, I think that's... You're right. They do like that trail that leads and it can be circuitous. I remember once speaking to the son of a laureate who they had been trying to contact. They're trying to get the laureate. They couldn't get the laureate. They could get the son, but they wouldn't tell the son what was going on. Right. So right. when I eventually spoke to him, he said, can you please tell me what's happening? Because this is really freaking me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my sister-in-law, she didn't know who Thomas was. And she said, well, I didn't know who he was, so I didn't want to give him your phone number, but I asked him for his phone number. So those kind of things, yeah. Yeah. And how do you handle all the pressure that comes with receiving prizes, this one more than most, but they all bring attention. They all do. I have to say, though, that the, the Nobel is still very different than any other prize in terms of that. You know, the magnitude in terms of attention is far greater. I don't know. I think prizes are wonderful things, but they're also a little strange in a sense. You know, as a scientist, you're not really used to getting that kind of attention most of your career anyway. And you do your thing, you know, you, you take sort of pride in giving a good seminar. Maybe you get some attention that way or a really nice paper comes out. People say, I love that study. It's really beautiful. But this kind of stuff is a little different. And, um, you know, to some degree, you also have a responsibility to embrace it and be social and interact with people and use it as a platform, especially when you're interacting with younger people you know, to sort of spread the joy of doing science and the meaning of what the, all that means to be, you know, a scientist and contribute to knowledge, et cetera. So I think um, although most of us are not um, sort of built for that kind of, you know, 
intense social engagement, I think you have to kind of put your insecurities behind you a little bit and embrace it. Yeah, it's a good reflection because, yes, it does place a a sort of onus on you to be a a publicist for science, to be a communicator, which you have to be already to be a good scientist, I'm sure. But but it, it is a little bit at odds, I suppose, with the totally focused approach to science that you need to have in order to have got to the position of making discoveries that are Nobel worthy. Yeah, I think, you know, you take on more responsibilities and there are more distractions, both at your home institution and then, you know, everywhere else. And, you know, you travel a little bit more than I never really traveled as much as my other colleagues in terms of, you know, some of my colleagues are in airports all the time. So you have to do a little bit more of that. Although now with COVID, you know, it's a little different. Yeah. You know, I think um, for me anyway, it's not a bad time in my career to do that. You know, I'm still active, but I'm not, you know, 40 years old and scrambling around trying to get my lap together. So it's sort of, uh, it's a good time for me to devote some time to the kinds of activities that are associated with the Nobel. David Julius was born in Brooklyn in 1955. He earned a bachelor's degree in biology at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1977 and a PhD at University of California, Berkeley in 1984. For his PhD and his postdoctoral stint at Columbia University, he was supervised by some pretty impressive scientific minds, esteemed by chemist Jeremy Thorner and Nobel laureates Randy Sheckman and Richard Axel. When asked about the importance of mentors, David Julius quotes another Nobel laureate, Alfred Gilman, who was awarded the Medicine Prize in 1984. I remember um, Al Gilman once saying at a memorial for someone, he said, who you are as a scientist is a direct reflection of those with whom you've trained. Right. Now, you know, we're all ourselves to some degree, and there are people who come from a training lineage or whatever, you know, experience in which they sort of transcend all that. But, you know, for most of us, I think, you know, having great, if you want to call it role models. The people who I worked for, I think what, you know, I learned from them was the bar set high. Science can be uh, fulfilling and fun, but it's also kind of a serious endeavor and you have to kind of push yourself to be rigorous. You know, I also learned from them that it's important to think about problems and attack them from, you know, multiple directions, right? So, you know, Randy and Jeremy were great examples of that because they, you know, they work in a field that was sort of, you know, essentially in yeast genetics. And in the days when I was in the lab, you know, a lot of the people in, in, in yeast biology, I should say, were, they were geneticists and they approached it as geneticists, a very genetic system. And what was unique about them is that they appreciated and used the genetics, but they were also trained as biochemists. And so they sort of had a very effective way of merging those things together. And I think that made their lab special because you could really take advantage of the system. And I learned from that, that, you know, if you really want to be effective, that's a great thing to do. You know, take advantage of all the wonderful attributes of your system and don't be afraid to kind of venture into these different things. But they also had high standards. Same thing with Richard. Basically, they were enjoying themselves and having a good time, but they also, you know, they weren't fooling around when it came to looking at data, figuring out what to do next, analyzing data and knowing what you can say and can't say from it, what kind of experiments to do, controls, all those things. I think, you know, consciously or subconsciously really sort of set a bar for you as a trainee, what you think is going to be the the path. Absolutely. In terms of doing rigorous science. Absolutely. It takes the right person to be mentored. It must be a very interesting balance between being 
keen to branch out on your own and having the self-confidence to have ideas and see them through yeah. and listen to the advice you're getting from your mentor. I can see that you could just be too keen to just get going as a solo researcher. Yeah, I think it's true. You know, when you develop, you sort of watch yourself become more independent. And I remember some times when, you know, I was talking to Randy or Jeremy and they said, well, I think you should do this or that. And I thought at some point, I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, in the beginning, I was rather humble and, you know, you know sort of, <laughs> but, but still, you know, you, you do develop a sense of what you think is really exciting. And sometimes because you're really close to it, you know, you have a different sense of that. And sometimes it's better, sometimes worse. And um, you learn to sort of follow your instincts. And I remember there were times when, one of them would say, I think you should do this. And I thought, mm, that sounds kind of boring. I'm going to try this thing because it's really sort of a long shot. But if it worked, it would be really exciting. And you yourself sort of know that you're kind of prepared to take on that challenge. And um, I did do that once, which led to a really fantastic study in the lab, just as I was kind of leaving. And it was probably my sort of crowning achievement in those labs. <laughs> but, you know, I was really excited to try it. And from a mentor standpoint, they were probably, you know, trying to be a little bit more cautious. Yeah. But the one thing I can say about those guys, and the same thing's true of Richard, is although we might have had discussions and they had, you know, a different sense of where I should go at certain times, once I decided to do something and take on something risky, you know, they supported me. They didn't get fickle. You know, that's, I think, the worst thing you can do is like when someone takes on something risky and you okay it and, you, you know, you're convinced that that would be really exciting. If the person gets stuck in a rut a little bit or trips, you know, you can't just say, well, you know, I told you so. You know, you have to, like, give them a little enthusiasm and, and um, let them take that risk and move forward, you know, up to a point. Then you got. But they were great about that. But that's so important, isn't it, to be supported in your risk taking? Yes. In all walks of life, whether it's, whether it's doing research or just being at a job and trying yeah. something out and having your boss be with you or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to prove yourself a little bit, you know, in the beginning. I had, you know, done other things and you have to kind of show them that you're serious. And also, like you said, willing to take advice and interact and, you know, have a back and forth and conversation. But then if you, you know, at some point, it's great to have that support, even if you know that you might go down the rabbit hole, as they say. <laughs> Talking of support, it's an interesting fact that your wife, Holly Ingraham, is also a professor at UCSF. Yeah. So how is the dynamic at home? Is it, is it a very supportive thing to be scientists together? Do you talk science all the time at home? Uh, we do a lot. Yeah, my son sort of, uh, he says, you know, you guys, you talk science too much. So he's probably <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you sort of have to. It's on balance a really good thing. And actually, now we're sort of working on this project together. We're just writing a grant together. It's like the one time we've actually worked on a project together at the interface of our two labs, and it's turned out to be great. But um, what's great about it is that, you know, you can understand one another and the sort of uh, the challenges that are involved sort of day-to-day -day and long-term. And so there's not this kind of lack of understanding about what is your partner so uptight about now or what are they trying to do? Why are they spending so much time doing this? You understand exactly what that's all about. But, you know, at times also, um, I wouldn't say there's competition in, in necessarily, but, you know, it's you know, when you're living with another scientist and you're, uh, one person may have a great paper come out and the other, and, you know, usually you're pretty supportive about that. But, um, you know, everybody gets a little, you know, it depends when in your career, you know, gets a little bit anxious about their career and where things want to go. So I think that's true with any 
pair of people who are doing creative things. You have to kind of um, synchronize that energy and mm. hopefully be kind of in the right zone at the right time. But o- overall, I would say for us, it's been great. It's been a plus. I think the other thing, too, is that you do have to remember to um, pay attention to other things like your kids. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> for instance, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, other social aspects of your family and friends. And so Holly, fortunately, she's a very dynamic person and she's very social. You know, she likes to do other things other than science. And so uh, that's worked out very well for us, I think. I also saw that she was awarded the UCSF medal for encouraging diversity. Yeah. That's an interesting theme, how diverse science needs to be or ought to be. Do you worry about that? I do to some degree, yeah. I mean, she's put a lot of time into this. This is something that, you know, aside from her own science, she's run this program called an ARACTA program, which is a NIH-funded program to increase diversity of the postdoctoral pool and ultimately of the pool of, you know, faculty. And her program's actually, I think, one of the most successful in the country. So she's really vested herself in that. Uh, That's one thing we live together. I've learned a lot by watching her do that because... She really puts a lot of time into that. Yeah, through that, I've sort of learned. It it is important because I think you have to give it some energy to sort of make things change. I've seen some great people come through that program, uh, of her program, and then go on now and be junior faculty at uh, other institutions. And I think um, what the program that she helps run really, I think, gives these folks is confidence. You know, because uh, I think some people come from a background where they look around and say, nobody in my family is a scientist. Some may not have ever finished high school or college. And so there's a lot of, you know, doubt about whether academia, for example, or even, you know, science is a place for them. And some of these people are just fantastic. I mean, they're really, really good scientists, but they don't know if this is an environment in which they will thrive. And what this program really does is just help them kind of uh, work in an institution where They can really see that they are very good, that they can fit into this group, that they can become their own person. I've seen, you know, numerous people come through this program who are now, you know, have faculty positions. And so, you know, if you do that for a few people, it makes a big difference. So, yeah, I think it's important because I think we take it for granted how difficult it is for some people to see, irrespective of how talented they are, whether they can fit in. And I think there are a lot of people who drop out of the system because they just have convinced themselves that it's not a place for them and it's too difficult. Yeah. Not in terms of their talent, but in terms of how they feel about where they are in the institution. And I think that's something that is easily, you know, not thought about. Mm. It's interesting. It's complicated, isn't it? Because obviously there are lots of people coming through the system who manage fine mm. and they find their path. Yeah. Some people find great mentorship and some people find the self-confidence you do often meet the buffers. And I guess a lot of people turn away from it who could have made it if they'd found a path through those moments. Yeah, exactly. We meet so many young people around the world and they ask laureates that we're visiting with questions. And Mm -hmm. among the most common questions, perhaps even the most common question, is how do I cope with failure? Yeah, yeah. And I guess it doesn't just have to be experimental failure. It's all sorts of different failures, but it's this sense that, as you put it, they don't feel it's the place for them. They can't fit in. Right. So if those programs, programs like the Iraqta program or others like that, can do one thing, I think it's really to make people feel more comfortable in the environment and realize that, you know, you can come from anywhere 
and do science. I mean, that's the thing. You know, when I go to speak to younger people, sometimes I say, you know, if you want to do this and you're curious, you don't need to be concerned about coming from a certain background, et cetera. I know that's a little naive because in the real world, you have to overcome certain obstacles. But I mean, in your own mind, your parents don't have to be college educated. You don't have to come from, you know, this area of the world or that. If you're, you know, talented and determined person and you want to do this, you can do it. I think that's, you know, a message that it sounds simple, but it's not always, you know, easily realized or accepted by people. And, uh, you know, I think everybody, it's basically, you know, an important part of mentorship. In 1997, David Julius used capsaicin, the compound that creates a burning sensation in your mouth if you munch on a chili pepper, to identify the receptor in our cells that responds to heat. Trip V1 is part of a family of ion channels connected to sensory responses, such as taste, smell, sight, hearing, and touch. By using menthol, Julius and his lab also identified the cold receptor, Trip M8. Since those first breakthroughs, he's continued to explore the Trip Channel family. If you step back from the sort of nitty gritty and just look at the, the whole family and the pieces of the puzzle that you discovered, what does it tell you about? <laughs> the beauty of nature. <laughs> uh, well, you know, this whole natural product thing is really a beautiful example to me of sort of convergent evolution in a sense. You know, you have all these different, not just plants, but animals like spiders and scorpions that have evolved, you know, very distinct chemical modulators of these channels that converge on this family of trip channels. You know, to me, that's that's really quite a beautiful example of natural product chemistry and evolution. These trip channels have um, evolved to detect a number of different stimuli and the weighting of how they detect that stimuli differs to some degree as to where you find them in the evolutionary tree. I suppose it's blindingly obvious, but the fact that different channels are responsible for sensation of similar phenomena in different species points to the fact that the experience of those species of the of these phenomena is probably different so that you could perhaps say that i don't know the sensation of heat when we have the sensation of heat mm-hmm. other species are detecting something rather different the same stimulus is producing a different sensation yeah i don't know if that's important or worth thinking about but uh, i think it is you know i think that taps into the idea that um animals evolve sensory systems to suit their needs in their lifestyle. And uh, I think that's one of the fascinating things about studying, you know, sensory biology, you know, even outside of trip channels, which is just um, each animal perceives the world in a different way. And it's based entirely on the molecular and biophysical and anatomical attributes of that sensory system. You know, you're right, like uh, in, a, in a rattlesnake, for example, one of the systems that we studied or a vampire bat, you know, they use um, heat sensation in sort of a different way than we do. I mean, it's related, but it's somewhat different. Of course, the rattlesnake's using it to sense, you know, body heat from a prey or a predator, hunt a squirrel in the moonless, you know, night in this little tunnel, or find, uh, use it to find a, a right, you know, resting place for, um, you know, for themselves during the day in terms of finding the right thermal niche. And uh, vampire bats, of course, use it to find um, the blood supply close to the surface in there, you know, in their victims at night, like a sleeping pig or a cow. And so uh, they've evolved these regions of their body, you know, so-called heat-sensing pits that um, convert, you know, infrared 
radiation into heat and transmit that information to their brain. I mean, it's, it's not so different in the sense than our cutaneous heat sensation, but it's a kind of a, uh, a ramped up version of that in that there's a particular anatomical region in the, of the face that does this and there's a very high density of trigeminal fibers. But ultimately, it's sort of similar. They use maybe a different trip channel than we use for thermosensation, but it's a trip channel nonetheless, and it's very highly expressed in these sensory nerve fibers. So there are sort of similarities and differences. And you're right, you know, their processing of that information. I mean, in the, in the rattlesnake, that information goes to a region of the brain that sort of uh, is integrated with the information coming in from their visual system. So they sort of presumably get kind of an overlay of the infrared map and the visual map. And so, you know, they're processing that information in a somewhat different way than we do in terms of heat sensation. Absolutely fascinating to be introduced to this different possibility of using the sensation of heat to give you information above and beyond the way that we sense heat. Right. Yeah. I mean, in a similar way that we do in terms of you do get a topographic association for where you touch something hot or whatever. But yes, this is sort of a, a different version of actually, we're not tracking, uh, you know, moving objects according to their temperature profile in the way that a snake is. No, and we don't list hot and cold as one of our five senses. That's uh, right. Yeah. Indicating that at least historically, we haven't thought of it in terms of information gathering. That's right. Yeah. About velocity and movement of, of objects. And yes. Yeah. No, no, it's, it is, it's a somewhat different use and kind of an exaggerated use of a somatosensory percept that we have and can relate to, but, you know, only to a certain extent in terms of what the snake is presumably seeing when it uses this, uh, these pits to uh, experience um, what they see. The other thing is that there are some senses that we really can't relate to so well that we've studied, like uh, Nick Bologno and Duncan Leach in my lab completed these studies a few years ago looking at... Uh, electroreception in aquatic animals, in skates and sharks. <laughs> That's a whole different question. It's not a sensory modality that we can really relate to in terms of using electrical fields in our environment to navigate or find prey or whatever. And so who knows what that means to the skater or the shark in terms of what it's feeling and what it's sensing. But uh, that's something that's unhuman Absolutely, yes. And we can't really, we can't really <laughs> relate to it other than intellectually. Or what the Earth's magnetic field looks like to a migrating That's bird. right, yeah. Yeah. But since our five senses tell us about the world around us, with climate change, maybe we should have heat and cold included yeah. in that. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, actually, to think about how it's not something you really want to think about because um, climate change isn't exactly a, a going to be a positive experience. But um, I'm sure there will need to be some adaptation. I don't know if it can happen at that you know rate, but, uh, you know, animals will be challenged in terms of their niche and where they live and, you know, whether and how they can adapt to changes in you know, all kinds of circumstances that uh, they have evolved to live in. Temperature, you know, food supply, water conditions, etc. Did you imagine as a child that you would be where you are now? Did you see yourself as a scientist? No, not really. I didn't have anyone in my, getting back to these, you know, issues we talked about before, I didn't have anyone in my immediate family who was a scientist. My father was, was an engineer, so a quantitative person, thinking about problems, etc. My mom was a school teacher, but um, I'd never been in a laboratory before, really, I thought about that. So 
I didn't imagine. I don't know what I thought. My father used to say I was really good at taking, I was curious. So I was always good at taking things apart when I was a little kid, like clocks and things. He said, you're not so good at putting them back together. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, so I knew I liked to do that kind of stuff, puzzles and problems. He, he sounds like a tolerant father, if you would Yeah, he was, he, he was, yeah. He let me play around quite a bit. And my brothers as well. Yeah, once I remember there was a, um, I lived in Brooklyn and this guy had over this, you know, semi-residential neighborhood and there was a truck delivering toys to a store down the street and he must have lost control and you know hit a light post or something and there were some things in the back that got broken so they put them out in the trash and among them were these um you know this toy called an etch-a-sketch oh yeah, it's like, yeah you know where you turn these two knobs and you draw little things and um my brother at the time he's uh, like three years older than me he ran home i was a little kid and he said go in the garage and get all of dad's, you know, mayonnaise drugs that he had saved, you know, to put like nails and screws in and stuff and put them in the wagon and bring them down to the corner. And I said, okay. And he brought a hammer. He just got in a chemistry set. So he thought all that stuff inside was mercury, you know, which I'm glad it wasn't because he probably would have been dead, but you know, it's just silver paint. So we sat there on the sidewalk, you know, with all these etch sketches that had been thrown in the garbage can with a hammer breaking the front glass and then pouring the silver paint into these jars so we could take it home because we thought it was, you know, mercury. Wouldn't that be cool to have all this mercury? So we dragged it all home. You know, we looked like the tin man. We were covered in, you know, silver paint. When my mother got home, she was just like, you know, from work, you know, at the end of a busy day, here we are, these two kids, you know. She called my father on the phone and said, what do I do? Well, you got to clean him off with turpentine, you know. But when he got home, he was pretty cool about it. He just said... <laughs> You know, he said, well, I'm glad it wasn't Mercury. My aunt felt so badly for us because my mother had, you know, she was sort of a little annoyed at us and she had worked in a dental office. So she brought us home this little tube of Mercury that they would use for the fillings. But so, yeah, we got to do crazy stuff like that and get away with it. But in any case, you know, I I don't know. I thought maybe I at some point thought I would be a physician or something or, you know, go into medicine. I don't know exactly where that idea came from. I think that was a route that you commonly heard, you know. And so when I went off to college, I thought, well, maybe that would be sort of a you know, pre-med path. I could do some science and eventually become a physician. But soon after going to college, I realized that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I sort of, you know, caught the research bug working in the lab. So, But I, I didn't really have a plan, I would say, for what I wanted to do when I grew up, so to speak. <laughs> Were you an extremely bright student? No. Well, you know... I think in the beginning, when I was younger in elementary school, I didn't really like school very much. And I was always like a little bit nervous about, especially with things like math and, you know, about not doing well. I was always a little worried about, you know, going to school and that kind of stuff. And then at some point, I remember in, you know, late elementary school, like around fifth or sixth grade, I decided, you know, I I should sort of get it together a little bit. I think I remember one thing that happened was there was a, a teacher strike in New York City when I was in like fifth grade. So there was no school for the first month, which is like, you know, a dream come true. But I decided maybe what I should do is get some books. I don't know where this came from and sort of try and kind of get ahead of the game a little bit. So it wouldn't be so daunting in terms of math. So I started, you know, going through the first and then, you know, that gave me a little leg up. And then all of a sudden I realized I could do pretty well. And from that moment on, you know, I just had a lot more confidence. I mean, I think it comes back to this whole thing we've talked about, you know, in terms of confidence. I've never been sort of a natural student, one of these people who can go into class and just ace everything or really loves didactic, you know, learning. For me, that's why I think working in a lab was so great in college. I did well in high school because I sort of figured out the game, you know, how I could 
make it work. And, you know, I just matured a little bit and kind of grew up and, you know, wasn't so, you know, worried about how well I was doing and just sort of did it. But when I got to college, you know, one of the things that really, that I really liked was actually after class going into the lab and being able to do experiments and work with my hands and, you know, learn something that wasn't just sitting at a desk and trying to pay attention. And I, I think that's really kind of what got me through college. And, and really got me excited about, you know, learning. Yeah, it's, it's very tempting to think of that moment of, of realisation during the teacher's strike as the absolute light bulb moment when you, yeah. you really took on the, um, understood the idea that you could influence your own exactly. pathway. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> I remember hating school and then I remember a particular English lesson where I realised that actually I didn't need to hate school anymore, it was okay. A lot of us go through these uh, moments when all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, like, you know, Exactly like that. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're younger too, it depends, you know, if you have a teacher or teachers who are, you know, very strict or, you know, you get called out on a case, something like that, it really has an effect on children. I've seen that in, you know, in kids I know. You know, if you have these these moments in school where you get uh, called out on something, you know, it's just sort of a harsh moment that can really have a long-lasting effect on kids, you know, depending... And I think probably for me, you know, I was always kind of moving around doing stuff. My guess is that, you know, in today's parlance, I probably had a little bit of uh, tensional, you know, issues. And I was, you know, I needed to sort of be busy, you know, physically doing things. And so that kind of uh, one size fits all classroom is um, sometimes, especially for kids like that, is uh, challenging in the beginning. I don't know if, if it's universally the case, but there does seem to be a move towards making children fit the mould more and more. You know, you, you have to get it right yeah. at an early stage. You have to do well in your SATs and all the rest of it. If you don't, it becomes rather hard to find your way back in. Yeah. I think we do, yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit easier in the States. In some countries in Europe, you know, you take these tests and then you get slotted into certain tracks very early on, you know, whether it's sort of a technical track or more of an academic track. You know, I think in the States, it's a little bit easier in the sense that you can go back to school at any time and kind of, you know, up to limits and, and, and refine your path, which I think is really a very good thing. But you're right. But that's very enlightened. That surely is the right way to be. Just as important as diversity in a way. It is, yeah. Where you're capturing people who don't have the confidence to find their way into a totally new world. Mm -hmm. It's capturing people whose confidence wasn't built when they were young. And they might discover themselves in their 20s or 30s. Or That's whenever. right. Or find their sweet spot or their passion that was in an area that, you know, they never expected. And that happens to people, you know, who, who really sort of blossom in a certain area somewhat later. And for them to have the opportunity to kind of retrace their steps and go back and find that area and make it their own is really, that's a wonderful thing when you see that. I know that happens to some people and it's, you know, you see them just transform into something different. This has just been superb. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. See you in Stockholm in December. Yeah, wonderful. But uh, for the moment, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about David Julius, you can go to nobelprize.org where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. 
The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with David Julius's co-laureate, Ardem Patapoutian, who talks about the importance of dreamers in science. You can find previous seasons and conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.